take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Greetings. Um, this is Paul Nixon, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Field Preachers Podcast. Today, I have two guests. They are co-authors of a book that came out last year, right at the beginning of the COVID adventure. Um, and we are discovering, um, as we're living into that and beyond that, that probably it's a more relevant book now than it was even then. The book is From Franchise to Local Dive, Multiplying Your Church by Discovering your contextual flavor. The authors here with me today are Jason Moore and um, Rosario Picardo. Um, Jason, for the past couple of decades, has been a regular um, workshop leader and, and keynoter at all kinds of events within the United Methodist Church and beyond. Um, he has really become a leader in helping us design worship and um, especially thinking about issues of media, issues of theming, and creativity. Um, he is also the proud new owner of a uh, an Escalade that he bought this last <laughs> weekend, and it was fun being a part of kind of the 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 virtual community that was um, pitching in um, ideas on how to buy a used car. Um, Ross Picardo is um, the um, dean of the chapel at United Seminary and the um, co-pastor of Mosaic Church in the Dayton area. Um, he has been um, a pioneer working with both revitalization of dying congregations and planting new um, for the past two decades. Um, these two guys are um, pretty um, high energy, high octane characters. And um, my first question for you guys is, how did you find one another? And um, is this the first time you've worked together or, or have you been doing stuff together? Well, Paul, thank you so much. Uh, this is Jason uh, speaking at the moment. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of the podcast. Um, and, you know, I almost feel like I need to ask for forgiveness for, for purchasing an Escalade. Uh, it just so happened that the deal was the same as what we were going to spend on a Tahoe, and it had every bell and every whistle. So we decided to go ahead and, and go for it. So anyway... Um, yeah, uh, Roz, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll pick up uh, from my memory of where we started and, and pass it over to you. Sounds uh, good. Roz and, Roz and I uh, kind of very quickly uh, one time met when I was speaking at Asbury Seminary for Ministry Week and had a, a short little encounter where we said hello to each other. And I met his wonderful wife, Callie, uh, and uh, really didn't have a lot of interaction in that first conversation. And then the New England School of Congregational Development asked myself and Roz separately to be keynote speakers for their event. And Roz uh, just happened to be uh, coming up to United Theological Seminary. Uh, were you a student at the time there, Roz? Yeah, I was finishing my doctoral degree. And okay. so Jason and I connected to plan out the entire conference theme. Yeah. So we didn't know each other at all. And we wanted our two keynotes to somehow marry up together. And since he was going to be in Dayton, where I live, uh, we we grabbed a, a table together and sat down and just, I would say almost immediately, just felt a connection with one another and just have very similar ways of looking at things and all of that. And, and so uh, Roz, uh, at the time, uh, I was very involved at Gingersburg United Methodist Church. And I had been on staff there in the late 90s, and uh, they were looking for a new pastor of church development. And uh, 
I think, I don't remember exactly what they called it, but I told Roz, he might be interested in this and talked to my friends at Gingosburg and kind of connected the two of them. And Roz, why don't you pick up and tell the rest of the story? Yeah. So, um, they mentioned, Jason mentioned that they were looking for this position. I had talked to them a year before for a campus pastor position, but I really wasn't interested in leaving Lexington where we had three different communities to then going to be a campus pastor, even though it was grant you a large church. But then I found out the dream role that I really wanted was being able to dream and help facilitate new faith communities. And so Jason mentioned this opportunity, connected me with Ginghamsburg and started conversations there. And so after uh, Jason and I spoke at the New England conference, things kind of moved forward. And I would say less than six months later, Ginghamsburg agreed to hire me. My bishop allowed me to come over to West Ohio. And I guess you could say the rest is history, but for Jason and I, that struck up a, a great friendship, and uh, I've learned so much from him where he's coached me. So he's not just somebody that preaches on the road and kind of teaches and, and shares his, you know, different feedback for churches, but he really cares to bring that in personal friendships and relationships. And man, he's helped me become a better preacher and leader just from his expertise on what he's seen. So I'd like to think that hopefully I positively influenced his life and, and what he does as well. But that continued a friendship that's lasted over 10 years real quick. Yeah. And there's no doubt Roz has had a huge impact on, on my life. And uh, he's the first person I go to when I'm processing things and just been a great friend, but also a great collaborator. And so uh, very quickly, uh, Roz was invited to speak at, um, uh, well, you were at, at United at the time, but to offer a class on sort of cultural context and how do you create something new. And Roz and I often get together and brainstorm when either of us is doing work uh, just to, to, to kind of put creative wrappers around things. And we had this conversation actually sitting, uh, I believe we were sitting at Wendy's. Um, we'd have a lot of different places we'd gather, but I think we were sitting at Wendy's and Roz says, uh, what's a kind of a metaphor or a creative way that we could present this idea of cultural ministry. And we had this idea of the local dive, which is unique and, and flavorful and really speaks to local contests. And then the franchise that does everything in a very specific way and it's mass produced and, and whatever. And so we came up with this idea for a talk that Roz was going to do. And really he ran with it first in this keynote and did a tremendous job. And then we started thinking about together, what would it look like for us to maybe write a book together and uh, that, that topic came back up and we just found a way uh, to combine all of his expertise in the world of, of planting and revitalizing and coaching and all that kind of stuff. And my expertise around worship development and design and all of that. And, and uh, it just, it became a really great kind of marriage of ideas and, and our friendship and, and all it, of that. It, the, the book re reads really smooth. It's kind of hard to tell who's writing what, which is, a, which is a key that you had a pretty good working relationship as you wrote it. Um, I have discovered in doing co-writing, and I think I've done four co-author projects, that um, they're all fun, but in different ways. Um, but the key is the conversation. And you were living into a conversation with each other before you got into this. So um, you, you really feel that that energy that you guys are, you know, you're, this isn't just one of you thinking through this stuff. You've, you've been sort of um, pushing back and forth 
behind and before the writing happened yes. and maybe since even i don't know yes absolutely since as well mm-hmm. so i have a question um is the zombie dog's food truck in Dayton a metaphor for the future of the church? You know, great question. I, I think there's something to that. You know, after we saw the recession of 08 happen, that's when, you know, these uh, food trucks started to take off again, right? It was during that desperation that it, it, it wasn't an innovative idea, but it was bringing back an idea from yesteryear right? The old food trucks. And um, I can't help but think with the local church that we won't have to be more missional in terms of going out to folks like the food truck. That's the whole metaphor. But also um, interesting enough too, for guys like me and you, Paul, that are functioning what we call the eighth apostle prophet evangelist, We'll have to exercise muscles that we haven't exercised before, probably in the area of pastoral care and connecting people and community. And so I, I think that would be, that's what zombie dogs does. That's what a lot of these local dives and food trucks do. And, and you know, there's an interesting second part to the story, which has happened more recently. Yeah. And, and that is that uh, they started off in their food truck, innovated, gained a huge audience, people that would follow them around, started their brick and mortar store. And then as COVID hit, um, they had they had to close down the brick and mortar store and they're back to the food truck and probably refining their innovation again, where uh, I'll tell you that I've got, when they had the brick and mortar store, I was surprised sometimes that the menu was not always as creative as the menu that was present you know, you've got overhead, you've got a different, you've got inventory, different way to stock things. And so uh, they are refinding, I believe, themselves in this new season where they don't have brick and mortar because COVID hit and we can't have people gather in person in the way that they used to. So I think zombie dogs is the perfect metaphor (laughs) in some ways for what we've experienced in this last year. Of course, some congregations actually and literally buy food trucks. And, yes. and, get, yeah. and get out in the neighborhood with them. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about a faith community being organic, and that's something that you talk about in the book, um, what do you what are you meaning by organic? Yeah, that's a. It, I, I think it's going in um, by discovering kind of this missional alignment, and that happens through what we call cultural exegesis. It's discovering. It's not coming in with um, predisposed ideas of what you're going to do and what you're going to inject in a given community. But you work with the community to see what rises up together to the surface. And so you're asking those questions. What are the greatest strengths? We always start with strengths because we believe God's at work in every single community. That's what prevenient grace is. And so we're not going in invoking God's presence anywhere. God's already present and active. So starting with the strengths, then we're looking at the needs. And this goes beyond demographic data where it's feet on the street. It's not just some people in a boardroom looking at stats because every stat represents a person and every person is valuable to God. So after kind of doing those informal conversations, then you find out what are the opportunities. And usually what I see is the opportunities 
come from a given community, but they go to address a specific need. And so I think that's kind of the organic flavor because it's this church community congruence that takes place. So it's not the church by itself imposing what they're going to do on a community, but it's coming up with the recipe together. And there's ways in which the recipe grows out of what's happening in the community. Uh, and that's the difference between the franchise and the dive is that the franchise has a lot of their recipe worked out ahead of time. They've got a lot of the ingredients, the way it's going to look, the way they're going to cook it, you know, all that figured out. And they, they take that to a community. And sometimes it doesn't work because it doesn't speak to the local context. But, but when you start with the organic recipe uh, and then find it, there's a, a really different experience. I've coached a couple of chips church planters that got their whole meal cooked before they moved to town. Yeah. And it's sort of like mama having Thanksgiving ready to go in the oven, but there was just too much pre-work and there was stuff that was served that nobody really wanted to eat in the town they went to. And it was yeah. so cool. I mean, the one project mm -hmm. was just, um, oh, yeah. it was amazing. I mean, the graphics, the, the concept, it would have worked not where he went, but, but somewhere else, you know, um, yes. but it, it didn't grow up organically. And I, I think there's a danger sometimes when we get too far into our planning before we've really spent some time with the folks and paid attention, yeah. you know, to what, there, what God's already doing in this neighborhood. There's a really vulnerable and wonderful story that we shared in the book, uh, that our friend George Acevedo shared with us about Grace Church and how they had done all this wonderful work in, in Florida where they're at, they re revitalized and started, what is it? Four or five new campuses. Mm -hmm. And one of their pastors was moving to uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota uh, to be near family and loved Grace so much and said, I just want to take Grace with me. And uh, somehow uh, Bruce, oh, the bishop there uh, heard about that and said, hey, if you're coming to here and you don't want to leave Grace, what could we work out something where maybe we have a Grace campus here in Sioux Falls. Now, from the outsider's perspective, somebody who had no idea about any of those internal conversations, I remember seeing a photo of George on Facebook in Florida with snow all around him saying, this Florida boy doesn't know what to do with all this stuff or so, you know, something like that. And I thought, why on earth is Grace planting in Sioux Falls, especially when you've got Adam Weber out there who is growing like gangbusters. Like, and, and so the vulnerability that George had in sharing this story was so helpful. He told us that um, when they got to town, they realized two things. One is that there wasn't a great need for what they had to offer uh, because they were, they, they're really good at, at kind of recovery church. And that's like their sweet spot. They have done a great job. But they got to town and found out there were two other ministries that had already been doing that, had been doing it for years. And so there wasn't as much of a need for it um, as as they might have hoped. And then the second thing is, is they've always been kind of a, a rehabilitation uh, focused church. So they take in and they rehab a church. They take a church that's got some DNA, but needs some help and they rehab that church. And this was the first time they were planting something from the ground up. And so I think they started in November and by like the following April or something, uh, they gave it their best shot, but it just didn't work out. And and part of what they did was develop this, this playbook. So they all had the same understanding of like, who are we? What are our non-negotiables? And then how can we live outside of that too? So they maybe went in with too much of a recipe in mind and didn't think enough about the local flavor and context. And, and we're just so grateful for uh, George for, for being willing to show, share that story with us. 
we learn more from those experiences that go awry, I think, than we sometimes do from the ones that work. Because the ones that work, we're never quite sure why they did. But, but when they, they go awry, we're usually able to figure out some things um, about, you know, sort of re staying with our sweet spot in terms of what our gifts are. And, yes. And, um, but not everyone is, is humble enough to share a story like that. And that's yep. why I couldn't believe when I called George, he spent an hour or an hour and a half on the phone with me, just telling me every nuance of that story. And I just, it was such a gift. A lot of ink has been spilled in the last quarter century talk, teaching us about the art of hospitality, especially related to worship services and guest response. And our church is getting it because you spent some time in this book telling us about this as well. I mean, the, the whole, the whole, challenge of building relationships um or do you have a sense that people are catching on to this or why why are we why are we still having to work so hard on this ross do you want to start you go for it okay um well i i think that too often churches without meaning to are so inwardly focused they can't see the forest for the trees so uh, one of the really interesting things that I have seen just in this last year, I've been doing a lot of work around um, what I call both and worship, doing worship for people both in the room and online, you know, um, is is too often we talk about adjusting the way that we do worship for the outsider so they they feel more comfortable and so on. And you get the people who are already in the fold who say, we don't want that. We can't do that. You know, and I always remind people that though, you've already got those people. They're already with you. But but to change up our practices and start to think of those on the outside really makes relationship building possible. Um, so I would say that some churches do get it, but many churches are so protective of the institution. They want, they want the recipe to be served up the way they want it. And they're not so concerned about changing things, changing the recipe enough uh, to, to maybe reduce the spices just a little. So somebody who doesn't like spicy food might might actually want to partake of it, you know? So um, we really believe, and, and that's why we spent some time in the book talking about what I call guest readiness, the idea that we're, we're intentionally ready for guests. And I think, Paul, that that looks even a little different now as we consider online and in person. Uh, we have to actually, one, one of the points I've been making a lot lately is that a year ago, we set the terms for worship. People came to us, at a certain time and a certain place. And we set all of the rules. You come at this time, at this space, we're going to tell you, you know, how it goes. It's, it was on our turf. And a year ago, uh, COVID forced us to take worship to them on, on their turf. And now they get to participate with, uh, you know, on their terms. And so they'll watch when they want to, they'll, they'll participate as they, they want to, but we have to think about how do you deliver up this old story in a new way with a new recipe that worked for somebody that's never stepped foot in a church. And hospitality is a part of that, the way that we greet them through chat and we allow them to engage with us in, in other ways is so important to the future of the church. There's a difference between being a participant in worship and watching over someone's shoulder in worship. And so the way we've treated online was just more spectator. I'm watching someone zoom in on a camera and that's about it. I think really what we want to get to in hospitality is moving from just a visitor to a guest to then someone that has refrigerator privileges in your own house. 
And, and that means being able to pull up the chair. It means I'm not going to like everything on the menu. Um, as Chip Freed says, and I've quoted him often, uh, you'll like 70% of what we do here and 30% you won't like. But guess what? Your 30% might mean might be somebody else's 70%. And so even when we make dinner here, I have three little ones. They're not all going to like the same food. But guess what? We want you to sit for dinner because it's more than just the meal. It's about being together. And so how do we create an atmosphere where people can pull up a chair, whether it's in person or online? And a lot of what we do in person has really been, you know, focused on the insider. We don't explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. We just carry on like normal. And I think COVID has helped us realize that we have to remember who's coming through our virtual doors, but our in-person doors as well, knowing that they're not going to have the same working knowledge that somebody that grew up in the church does. And so how do we make those on-ramps easier for them to pull up the chair, open the fridge, get in when they need to get in? So it's definitely a hospitality issue. Can I just piggyback one quick, quick thought on that? Um, I have been saying a lot in my both and training and, and Raj, you started to, to, to nail it. Uh, we've got to get away from, I think we have to eliminate completely from our vocabulary that we want, want watchers of worship online and that we want viewers. We want worshipers online. We want participants online, but they can't participate or worship if we don't give them a way to do that. So we have to craft our worship in such a way that we're allowing them to be a part of it. I, I've been talking about the idea of moving from monologue to dialogue in our worship. We've got to move away from one person talking to the camera to allowing folks at home and in the room to feedback and be, a, we're going to prepare the meal together in a sense in this new era of worship. And, and so part of what that means is that we have to give new language. We have to help people who are not yet connected to us at all understand what we mean when we say sacrament or, or Eucharist, or, you know, all those kind of things. So our language has to change a little bit so that the outsider can understand what they're participating in. The wor worship has been an interesting experience during the season of COVID because I mean, all, I mean, everything just shifted in such a remarkable way. So we have our own Sunday routine at our house. There's a couple of different services that we, um, connect with but somehow or another the algorithms from somewhere on youtube took us to yet a third church one sunday um that's also in our city that uh, we didn't ask to go there and all of a sudden i just looked up and we were there and it has been so sweet because it's a total connection with me on a variety of levels and i just never would have even thought about it so I can't wait to actually show up in person in that space because it hooked me, okay? Um, but it's, it's a long way from being hooked with content to being, to, to being hooked by community. Yes. And so, um, and there's a lot of things that are possible in terms of, of the, um, the gifts, the, the, um, the involvement, the the integration of that church's, um, of what they do with, with my own discipleship journey, all that's sort of hanging in the, the wind. 
depending on how they decide to respond to me when I show mm-hmm. up in that space. Right now, I'm not showing up in an interactive space. I'm just watching um, on YouTube, but I want to step in and I will, but it'll be interesting to see um, how my experience of that place shifts as we begin to see what the what the interactive is. I really think that um, hospitality is all about community building. It's about basically, do you see me? Do you yeah. kind of like me? You know? Yeah. Um, I, and I would I would suggest though that that can happen both in person and online. Uh, one of the people that I've been featuring in my webinar is uh, DJ, uh, who is the online worship pastor at at uh, Raz's church, mm-hmm. and so she's the online worship host, and she talks to people and encourages them to engage in the chat and interact and. And sometimes even tells them what, you know, what you can do right in your home right now to participate in this moment. And I would love to believe that if somebody falls in love with Mosaic's worship online and they come to know DJ as their online worship pastor, because she shows up every week, she says, hey, it's Pastor DJ, it's good to have you with us. And this morning we're talking about, you know, she sets the table. And she talks about right now, check in on the app so that we know you're there. We want to know that you're a part of it. We want to reach out to you, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, I would like to believe that if I've been watching for six months online and I am really drawn in by this pastor, that the day that I walk through the door, I get to meet her in person for the first time. And that relationship has already begun prior to, um, to stepping into the building. Now, some churches are just doing worship with the camera in the room. And they're not really thinking about the hospitality part of it, the relationship building that can happen even before we're together. I'm going to switch subjects here for just a second. Um, you spent several pages in the book talking about crafting a covenant mm-hmm. um, for the for the new ministry project, especially if it's a new worship community, crafting a covenant. And, and I suppose usually with the the um, the the existing church or the planting church or the whoever the um, kind of the, the stakeholders are. Um, I felt like that there were some stories behind why you would have taken that much time to talk about covenant, but why is covenant important? I mean, covenant I think is important because it, it sets out the expectations. And if you don't set out the expectations on the front end, it can create brokenness in relationships. I mean, that's really uh, when we think about a lot of the disagreements in friendships, relationships, marriage, it's unmet expectations. And sometimes those expectations are implicit or explicit. And so the covenant really helps shape what we're expecting from one another. And so I think in the story of Mosaic, we, we kind of saw what happens when expectations aren't clearly communicated. And so we were birthed by two mother churches, but Mosaic was its kind of own blend in flavor. It was more of the R&D department, just like P&G, Procter & Gamble. They have many different products. Well, we were kind of one of, one of many different products, but we were doing, we're doing this multi-ethnic blend flavor that neither mother church was doing. So what that meant was we were going to do our own branding. We we're going to do our own sermon series. We we're going to have our own website. It wasn't things that we really communicated at the front end that, of course, you can tell can create a lot of angst. And so 
we went through um, some difficult conversations that I think made everybody stronger as a result of that because we were able to learn together what this meant. So now our relationship continues with one mother church, but it's really changed their philosophy on what church planting and campuses look like uh, because they've moved from we share a diagram in the book, what it means to be independent, interdependent, and autonomous. So kind of from that franchise to, to local dive. And I think it's important to look at every ministry area and determine how much of it is going to look like mama or dad and how much of it is going to look like the child. And so right now, fresh expressions are a huge thing. People are doing fresh expressions of church all the time. And many of those are launching from an existing inherited congregation. Well, it'll be important to covenant at the beginning to determine, hey, is this going to meet in a coffee shop, bar, movie theater? Um, are they going to do our sermon series? Or is it going to be just completely wild and different and allow that to happen? So I think it can help with the expectations and heartache up front. What do you think, Jason? I think uh, you, you certainly uh, picked up on some of those battle scars that we both have experienced uh, in our own work and in work with churches that we have had the opportunity to coach and consult with. Um, yep. I think of the covenant as sort of having some really tough, potentially conflict type uh, conversations up front and fighting the battle and, and figuring the battle out uh, all up front rather than having to fight those battles every single day that you're in ministry, where you just keep running up against the things that we don't have shared expectations, we don't have a shared vision. Uh, and so rather than letting that conflict play out and, and fester and just uh, completely different understandings of where we're headed, to do the hard work up front to say, okay, so where do we think we are on this, on that chart that goes from one extreme to the other? How much are we like a franchise? How much are we like a local dive? The other thing I think we have to keep in mind is that the relationship between the planting church and the plantee church, um, there's benefit on both ends. And sometimes we almost think that if we're the planting church, we're offering all of the good stuff. We're, we have nothing to gain except that we're going to provide you with all the stuff you need. But a new organization, a new faith community can bring a lot of life the other direction, if the planting organization is willing to lean into it and, and see. So we, we've talked about in the book, uh, the idea of removing language around like main campus, you right. know, it's one campus and another campus. It's if we can get rid of that kind of father daughter or, or father son, you know, relationship or whatever, um, the mothership, you know, uh, there, there's some healthy things that can come out of a relationship that's that's both both back and forth. Yeah, satellite is definitely a, um, a word that has connotations of it's revolving around something else. And usually it's not Jesus as, <laughs> at the center. It's yeah. not playing the role of the sun, but rather, you know. It's um, more of a solo heroic leader or one main attractional campus usually. Right, right. And, and we've, the fun thing about writing this book was that we reached out to a ton of different people that all have different models and we like we're big fans of uh, Jacob Armstrong and Jason McAnally and what they're doing there. And so there's a there's a campus relationship, um, but they don't they're not like uh, Providence West, 
you know, like their home church and they're not, you, you wouldn't even know, but there's, there's a mutually beneficial relationship and one organization sort of adopted and helped the other. And so that's, that's one way that it can look, but then you can also do what Adam Weber has done and created multiple different venues that are all, you know, there's just a lot of different ways to, to do this, but working out ahead of time, what is our understanding of what this thing is, is so valuable. Well, I've seen it both ways as well. I do a lot of work with multi-site and there are some multi-site, I would say networks where they're working together off of a, um, a single sort of ministry vision that is that lived out in very different ways in different contexts. And if you go to one of those contexts, you don't necessarily know up front that it's connected to all the rest because it's like too much information. The average person in that community doesn't need to know all of that. It's like, yes, why, why do they have to know that? I mean, that's interesting information to, to discover maybe as you get more involved, but you know, so each of the places, or the points of ministry are branded very distinctively. Yes. And yet you begin to discover it's a whole family of um, ministries that work in harmony. I was doing a consultation with a, a new church start in um, Kansas one time. And uh, out on the front of their um, lawn, they had this sign that was like, you know, the logo of the church and all that. And I went and they handed me the bulletin that morning. And all over the bulletin was the logo of the planting church nothing about that church. It even listed the senior pastor as the pastor of the planting church. And the leader of this campus was like way down on the bottom. And I didn't, you know, I knew because I was a consultant, but I figured that the average person would walk in there and have no clue. When you go to their website, they had a website listed on the, the bulletin. It just takes you to the main campus's uh, uh, website. So you have no, no context at all for that other church because it's somewhere else in another part of the town and it's its own congregation. So yes, I'm, I guess I'm just agreeing with what you're saying there. It's, it can get confusing sometimes if we don't have those relationships worked out. Well, we are coming to the end of the COVID season. I'm being hopeful. Um, we are definitely coming out. Um, we're more than halfway through people are going to begin and they are beginning. Um, even this month, they're beginning to gather together again and they will come out. Um, in greater numbers across the, the year that is before us. But we're living into this sort of hybrid space that most churches are going to go backwards if they, t- if they close down their digital ministry. I mean, it's going to be a, a, a really bad idea to do that. I was, uh, I was on a conversation even last night with a church that used to run 40, but now they're probably twice that size because they've, I mean, they've just been able to, to spread out. Um, it's been a really, really good year for them. They've grown. Um, Inner City Church in Chicago has grown through through all of this. So um, as you think about this um, entry back into um, um, live, impersonal gathering at a single GPS, um, what would what encouragement or admonitions would you have for churches that are on that journey? to open the doors again, the physical doors. You want to go first, Ross? Yeah, go for it. Um, you know, I've been hearing, and it makes me cringe every time I hear it, Paul. Um, people say, I'll be glad when this thing is over so we can stop doing this online worship thing and just go back to the way things were and you know all that. Uh, I've been telling people, I don't think w- the way things were existed anymore. We don't live in that world anymore. We now live in the post-COVID era 
And we spent a year worshiping from home. So we can't ignore the fact that everything about worship changed in the last year. So that's part of why I've designed this other training I'm doing called Both And, because I think Both And is a solution into the future of our church. Um, I think that one of the things we all have to consider is that we have to measure our impact differently than we used to. It was pretty easy before, right? People showed up in a building and we counted their butts in the seats and uh, we took those numbers down and, and that was kind of the way we did it. But And that uh, really wasn't measuring impact except for butts hitting the seats, you know, but exactly. Anyway. But but, you know, it was a metric that everybody felt we could all agree on. Um, I've been having a lot of churches say to me in this last few months, uh, how do we measure our attendance? And I've been saying, don't worry about your attendance as much as you used to, because there are other ways to measure. So I've been having all kinds of uh, conversations with pastors. In fact, I just had a consultation call this morning with a pastor in South Georgia who told me uh, he just received a message this morning from two people that want to join his church that have never stepped foot in his church. I have another pastor uh, who told me that in the last five years of being the, the pastor of this church, in the last uh, eight months, he's had more people show up to their new uh, membership class than ever before in five years, and most of them are not part of their church. Another pastor told me they've had 22 first-time givers uh, since this pandemic began, and almost none of them have gone to their church. So if you're investing your money, <laughs> you believe in something, right? And it's having an impact. That may be a better measure than how many people you have show up. The other thing I think we have to consider is that uh, those numbers that are on the screen views may represent a family of four or two or five, you know, so it's so much, it's so much different, but, but one, one final thought I just want to share here. And I thought this was fascinating about two and a half, three weeks ago, I read an article about how um, all of the major television networks, except for CBS, which skews old, older, they're the oldest demographic, Every one of those has decided they are no longer going to pay attention to the real-time Nielsen ratings. So that's, you know, it used to be the Nielsen's or how you won the slot and all that. They're now shifting all of their attention and focus on people who are watching on delay, uh, on, on um, DVR and streaming. And those numbers are going to have more weight than they used to. Well, now, well, I, I noticed last week that Oprah, when she interviewed Prince Harry and, and Meghan, she had one third the audience that when she interviewed Michael Jackson 20 years ago, because everybody, yes. people aren't watching it in the live moment. They're watching it over a period of time. Yes. And so if, if Hollywood has finally figured this out, I mean, we've been doing DVR for a very long time, but if they've kind of figured out that the way we are consuming content looks different now than it used to, we also in the church have to look at how are people consuming the worship that we are offering and how do you measure that in a new way? You know, a lot of us are, have started to realize that people are now attending worship again on their terms when they want to. So the numbers actually go up pretty significantly after you end that live broadcast. Nobody wants to take attendance until Monday because on Monday, the numbers may be twice what they were on Sunday because we live in a culture that loves Netflix and Disney Plus And, you know, we want to watch on our terms or participate on our terms. So, um, you know, I don't know. Those are a couple of reflections that come come to mind as I think about uh, where we're at right now. I think it gives the opportunity for local church, everything that Jason said, yes and amen, when it comes to online and all that. I also think this has given congregations the permission to reset. So what it what program, you know, 
program driven instead of being people driven. Uh, so what sacred cows are we allowed to kill off that haven't produced disciples? And we get to use COVID-19 as not the excuse, but the scapegoat in saying, hey, we're not doing that anymore. I think local churches are going to focus on fewer programs and more impact. So they're going to be doing less, but seeing, I think, larger return because they're putting their eggs in smaller baskets. They're thinking big, but they're focusing small. And I think the way you get larger, larger impact is by actually getting smaller and focusing on the people more. Uh, can I share just one one final thought? Um, and that is that um, for the people who are saying, I'll be glad when we can end this later, I've been using a, a bit of a metaphor. You know, Paul, how I love my metaphors. Um, I, I, I've given people this scenario to consider. Imagine at the beginning of the pandemic, you're a guitar player, and one day you're playing a little too hard, you break all your strings, and you go to order new strings. There's only one supplier because everyone's closed down because of the pandemic. And you go to order those strings and they say it's going to take a year for the strings to come in. Well, you're a musician. You can't not make music for a year. So you sit down at the piano and you start noodling around on it. And in, in a year, you actually get pretty good at playing the piano. I mean, because you have to make music, you're playing piano. It would be a huge shame if the day your guitar strings came in, you strung up your guitar and you never sat down at the piano again. We have learned to play a new instrument and deliver worship in a new way in this last year. And there are some people that like piano music a lot more than they like guitar music. And so it would be a shame to spend this last year expanding our um, reach and then never picking up this instrument again and, and just sort of tossing it off to the side and say, well, that was a fun year. And then go back to the way things were. I've been telling people to iterate forwards, not revert backwards. So as folks are captured by these ideas and would like to pick up conversation with either of you, how do we get a hold of you? Where, where do we, where do we reach you? Well, uh, we have a website set up for the book. Uh, where um, within a day or two, you'll be able to order the book uh, from it. Uh, we've got folks working on that right now. It's franchise two, the number two, franchise2dive.com. And then uh, you can find, uh, I'll give you my email address. You can mail it, mail, M-A-I-L, mail at midnightoilproductions.com. And you can Ross. email me at Roz at wearemosaic.org, or you can visit my website, rosariopicardo.com. Awesome. Well, um, you guys are um, very alive to the whole conversation of what the Holy Spirit is up to in this very intriguing season of ministry. And um, I have an idea that if we were to pop in to conversation with you five years from now, we'll, you will have learned a lot of stuff. Um, in that amount of time. It is an exciting time to be alive, and I really do appreciate the, um, the gift of this book and of your ministry. You're, you're, you're keeping us on our toes. Well, Paul, thanks we want to... Yeah, thanks for having us, but also thank you for being willing to write the foreword to the book. We reached out oh, to you, the, the top name on our list, and so we're, uh, we're grateful for the contribution you made to this resource as well. It was an honor to do so. This has been Field Preachers Podcast. We are a production of the United Methodist Church, a ministry of the agency Discipleship Ministries. Um, Field Preachers Podcast is looking at new and innovative ways of sharing the gospel, creating new faith community, and planting churches. Thanks to Jason and Roz for your time today.
Thank you. Thanks. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.